The practice of law can take you in a million different directions, but we're often told how important it is to specialize. The general thought is that becoming the best at some small slice of the law is what's going to make you the most effective and successful. But for many of us, the decision to focus on a niche can feel limiting. After all, we're curious people who've never shied away from a challenge. Today, we explore adaptability by talking with a lawyer who stepped out of his comfort zone, embraced the challenge of learning on the go, and did whatever it took to help his clients. This is the ABA Law Student Podcast. Hey, Leah. Hey, Shay. Today's episode has got a bunch of different pieces to it that are really cool. But one of the key pieces, I think, is important for our law students who listen to this. I know we get this question a decent amount. What do I want to do with my career? How do I choose an area of law that will be fulfilling and impactful? So kind of a really sort of interesting guess, interesting story. Leah, who are we going to hear from today? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, we're going to be hearing from Mike Quinn, who is a arts lawyer at a small firm here in New York. And I started out wanting to do this interview in a pretty like wonky and specific way of I've been following the Sackler, you know, Purdue Pharma opioid crisis issues ever since I read the book Empire of Pain. You know, there's the show Dope Sick. There's it's just in a lot of my podcasts and media, and also just you know knowing people who've been impacted by the opioid crisis. And so I started out this episode knowing I wanted to do something around that, but then I was like, I don't really know how to go about that. And so I just you know went to Google and I was just like, who are the lawyers that are involved in holding the Sacklers accountable? Which is like a pretty hyper-specific Google search. Uh, And Mike Quinn was the first person to come up. So from art law to America's opioid crisis to deciding what you want to do as a lawyer, let's get into it. Can you help kind of connect for our listeners? How is it that your name was the first to come up in that Google search? I represent an artist named Nan Golden, who in 2018, after overcoming uh, opioid dependency issue, read an article in the New Yorker by Patrick Radden Keefe about the family behind the Purdue Pharma opioid empire. And the family was called the Sacklers. Their names are plastered above every museum doorway throughout Western world. And she thought, how do I get the world to know that these people that we hold in such high esteem in the arts and cultural and education world are actually behind the opioid crisis? And as an attorney, I didn't have much experience in activism, let alone pharmaceuticals, you know, but I'm very close to Nan. I I just thought, well, how can I help? One of the lessons I learned early on in my career was I want to work with people. And so what my clients want, I try to help them with it, you know, and and it launched into this whole very intense lawsuit, which I had no experience in bankruptcy, but sort of the principles of law apply in every different venue or forum. And I did the best I could. Definitely. And I think, you know, there's always that fine line with lawyering where sometimes you have to punch above your weight. You have to, you know, dig in and find new strategies because that's like what you owe to your clients. But then there's the risk of running into some of the ethical concerns of 
practicing areas of law that you are really maybe shouldn't be not in like the sense that like you are not allowed, but you're not an expert in. And maybe there's a lawyer you should refer someone to that could, you know, do this better um, to more, you know, adequately get your clients what they're asking for. Was there ever a time when in the back of your mind, you're like, I need to tap someone else in, you know, this is maybe outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. So it's so great you asked that because initially there was an attorney associated with my firm who was a bankruptcy expert. And so naturally I asked him for help, but you know, I was doing this case pro bono and we went through one objection to a motion by Purdue and two things came to my mind. Like one, like, why was I so afraid? I could go on to the court and argue these things. I'm writing the briefs. And two, like, I don't want to waste his resources. You know, I was doing this case entirely pro bono. He's a busy person. And so I didn't want to over ask him for support. The other thing is during the case, throughout the case, I, I got advice from a lot of various practitioners and professors who would answer my nascent questions. And so it really helped me. There were people that helped me guide me along the way or just have engage in conversation about the case in a way that I could pick up on things. Now, I think the case started in 2019 and we're in 2024 now. So when do you become an expert in a field? <laughs> I still feel like I don't know anything about bankruptcy, you know, but it's been, it's been five years. So no, definitely. And I'm sure it's one of those things like when you're in the trenches, like there's no one who kind of knows the ins and outs of it as much as the person who's like rolled up their sleeves and gotten in there. I admit I have not taken bankruptcy. It seems like a very, maybe not my speed class. And so for our listeners who are just like maybe a little bit less familiar with what's going on with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, if you can kind of give them a sense of when you dove into that work, what it was looking like. And like you said, it's been five years now. What is it looking like now? Sure. So there's sort of two bookends to bankruptcy. There's consumer bankruptcy, which is like, oh, I racked up a bunch of credit card debt or I lost my job and I, I don't have any money and I have creditors. So there's individual bankruptcy, which you know we all know about. And then there's also corporate bankruptcy. The interesting thing about the Purdue case is the corporate entity Purdue went into bankruptcy. The individual Sacklers did not declare bankruptcy. But they engineered this process in which they could try to piggyback onto the corporate bankruptcy for they themselves to be discharged of liability. And that's sort of the crux of the issue that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Should individual corporate owners and officers be able to be discharged of their liability without themselves availing them as individuals to the bankruptcy process? And that's what they call uh, non-debtor releases. So they, mm -hmm. the individuals got releases that even more greater than if they declared individual bankruptcy, but they did it through what they call mega bankruptcy, uh, chapter 11 case. And I'm glad that you brought up the Supreme Court case that's ongoing right now and was heard during this most recent term. For those who may be unfamiliar that are listeners, can you give a sense of what is the tension right now in front of the Supreme Court as it relates to your clients and others? The way that Purdue and proponents of the bankruptcy plan has framed it is we have this settlement on the table, don't disrupt it. Like individuals want their money, states want their money, municipalities, hospitals. You know, we, we've negotiated this thing. We've spent a billion dollars in legal fees. Uh, we are where we are. It's the best deal you're going to get. Don't disrupt the apple cart. From our perspective, it's a real attack on the Article Three litigation process itself, right? So you have co-defendants, Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, 
who sat on one side of an adversarial litigation in the Article Three court go into the bankruptcy and suddenly sort of shift their position so that Purdue was acting as if it was adversarial to the Sacklers trying to beat them into a settlement. My clients, including Ellen Isaac, a mother who lost her son to opioid overdose, didn't agree with that. She thought that this should be an adversarial process, not one about just settling and splitting up the pie. Mm -hmm. So it's a real ideological fight in a way. It's about like, how should the courts be used? And it's about a fight against, you know, law and economic style efficiency over constitutional protections, things like that. And to that point, there's so many larger questions here. I mean, I feel like this is a lot of Fed courts professors like exam questions in the next semester because it's this idea of what should the Article Three courts be doing? Can bankruptcy do this? And these seem a lot of like procedural things. But like you mentioned, one of your clients is a mother who lost her child because of the opioid crisis. There has to be a ton of feelings of just anger and the ideas of kind of like justice and that justice will not be found in the bankruptcy court. And so how do you as the attorney navigate your clients like desires for these things at like an individual core personal level, knowing that a lot of the focus is on these like procedural elements of like the role of the courts and just kind of like bankruptcy courts are about settlement. Sometimes creditors don't get their due. Like how do you navigate those different desires? I think the tension is this case should have never been in bankruptcy. So if it's hard, you know, like once you've force it into a venue that it shouldn't be in. I don't think these parents were ever going to agree with any settlement that it came up with. I just think they were firmly opposed to it. They felt that if it was in an adversarial proceeding, like a normal litigation, it would serve them much better. And that just, you know, whether the settlement was the same number or not, there would be fact finding, there would be information that would come out about the Sackler's liability. Here, there was never any information about the Sacklers' liability. It was just, let's come up with a number to satisfy the most creditors that we can. The same thing happened in Mallinckrodt, which is another opioid manufacturer. In Mallinckrodt, the individual victims got, you know, they settled, they got a certain amount of money. The liability was discharged into these uh, channeling injunctions. And then Mallinckrodt declared bankruptcy again and said, geez, we don't even have enough money to pay these unsecured creditors, these individual victims. So we have to, we're going to keep the discharge, but we're going to renegotiate an even lower amount of money. So there's a lot of funny business going on in this process. And I think my clients, you know, mothers and family members instinctively knew what the Sacklers did and what Purdue did to them and this country was bad enough. Let's not let them run the system anymore. And so I fought as hard as I could to at least show the public, like, this is not a good thing. We can't let them control their own destiny. They're criminals and they deserve justice. I'm really glad you brought up the point about the public because, you know, one of the first episodes we did on this podcast was the relationship between, you know, being a lawyer and being a storyteller and that, you know, you have to kind of always know your audience and more and more so being a legal professional, you're audience is often the public because of podcasts, social media, et cetera. And so as you kind of started getting into this work and kind of navigating all these new players and things, how did you figure out, you know, how to use the public as like a leverage tool? Like you mentioned earlier, there's all these state attorney generals involved. There's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So how did you make sure your relationship with the media and like the public was best serving your clients? 
Yeah, I mean, again, I was sort of the uh, uh, I I didn't understand bankruptcy, and I think neither did the media, you know, and neither did the public. And people were sort of like, well, the Sacklers are bankrupt. Not everybody's going to get what they want, and that's just a just. But it was for me to educate myself and then to educate the media on our position within the case. And, you know, I think it was an incredible situation because a lot of the media, not all of it, heard our story out. So, you know, I represented in the lower case, in the bankruptcy, five individuals, yet eight out of 10 media stories showed our side of the story. And I kind of saw it too, that the bankruptcy, especially chapter 11 mega cases, it's kind of a boys club. It's a small closed community. So I saw we weren't getting much traction within the courtroom, but in the public square, in the media, there was plenty of traction. It didn't just stay there. You know, there was uh, hearings in Congress that we worked on. There was um, fictionalized television shows. There was documentaries. There was uh, books written. There was a lot of work to try to get our side of the story told. Do you feel like in conversations with your clients that that's helped them feel like they're getting the justice they've asked for? Because, you know, there's no guarantee within our legal system that they're going to get the outcome of like, no settlement, we're going to Article 3, you're going to get your time to like litigate this in court? Yeah, I mean, there was like, um, you know, when Patrick Radden Keefe's book Empire Pain came out, it was like a celebratory time because it was early on in the case and suddenly all these truths were revealed about exactly how the Sacklers contributed to this opioid crisis. Or then the uh, Beth Macy and Danny Strong's TV show Dope Sick came out. You know, this was all happening during the case, or there was a congressional hearing, or there was an act proposed in Congress called the Sackler Act. So there were these like minor victories along the way that kept my clients feeling like they had a chance to serve justice or, you know, that their children didn't die in vain. We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org slash join. So Leo, one thing that I thought was really interesting about the first part of your interview with Mike was the use of storytelling in a lot of ways, sort of telling the story of what his clients were going through. But in many respects, the stories that were being told were not being told using the traditional tools that lawyers have. I know Merrick Garland, the attorney general, he says, the Department of Justice in political cases, we tell our story in court through our filings. We don't otherwise tell our story outside of court. 
this was sort of a contrast to that. I know you have a background before you came to law school in communications. What did you think of how Mike was telling stories outside of the litigation context that had an impact positively on their clients? I think, you know, for a low resource, like pro bono case, you have to kind of use what's at your disposal. And I think the especially earned media, right? Like not media that you pay for is an incredible tool to shape the narrative. I think there's always the flip side and, you know, especially in like defense work of not exploiting your client's story, not ever portraying something that could harm them later. So I think there's limits to it. But I think in this case, there was so much like mystery of like, you know, you have a family that's behind a company. A lot of people might know about you know, Oxycontin, they might not know about Purdue Pharma. And even behind that, they might not know about the Sackler family. And so when you got layers and layers to this story, you kind of have to go to the press and tell it for yourself or else the people with all the money are going to definitely tell it for themselves. Yeah, it really sort of emphasizes two strands of, I think, what we've talked about before. One, the importance of storytelling in the law and also the importance of being creative in how you lawyer. And this was a, a way in which to creatively have clients' stories and their lives be told in a way that mattered to them. And so, like you said, you know, it's that you, you work with what you have when you're a lawyer. And if you don't have all the resources in the world or, you know, you're up against some legal doctrine that's going to be hard to move around, you try and find ways to be creative. And it sounds like here this wasn't just about being creative in service of the win, right? however we may define that legally. This was being creative in service of your clients, which I guess is the ultimate win in many respects too. Absolutely. And I think that part of that creativity that we're really going to kind of hear more about in the second part came once he had the foundation of like what's going on. And something that really struck me when I was talking to him is that he asked for help when he was learning about bankruptcy law. There was another lawyer on his team that was his collaborator. And I think oftentimes Law can feel a little bit like a solo thing. Like it's usually like you and your client in the room. It's you communicating before the judge. But this is like a team sport. I really kind of resonated with the fact that like he had to set his foundation first and asking for help. And then he was able to kind of get fun and creative and use his own unique skill set in a new context. Absolutely. I'm excited for the second part of your interview. Let's get to it. All I did in the case, I mean, it wasn't all I did, but there was probably about 20 or 30 objections I filed to motions that Purdue would bring. And nine out of 10 of them I lost, you know, but I was able to present information that made it very uncomfortable for the procedure to keep moving along. It was mm -hmm. also for me, practically speaking, like the objections are cheaper to file than motions. I didn't have to, you know, do proper service. I didn't have to pay for the motion. So some of it was just an invention out of necessity. Filing an objection is was a low bar compared to filing motions or um, other pleadings. And I know we've talked about bankruptcy being a new area of substantive law for you, but you're talking about kind of like just even like the knowledge to be like, okay, I'm going to file these objections. This is a good workaround to get my points made without having to do formal motions. You know, I think a lot of like first, second year folks are like, so by the book that they don't even think about those kind of things. And so what about your kind of previous work? Did you feel like helped equip you to have the mindset to bring into that courtroom? Yeah, like had this stayed in an Article Three court, I never would have participated, right? Because what I was able to do was file something called like a verification pleading where you just said, okay, there's five individuals out of 100,000 creditors 
who have these common interests, and we have to tell the court that these people have a common interest. Their common interest was they wanted more than just a pecuniary settlement. They were interested in accountability. They were interested in a proper procedure. They were interested in the court not cutting corners. And so it was really like a creative way to get into the case. I think like I work with creatives, so they don't see the guardrails that other people see. And maybe it's rubbed off a little bit on me. They were also like, they put some faith in me to like figure this out, you know? So there was a certain amount of pressure. How can I get their voices heard within the cakes? And then third, like I said, like there wasn't a lot of money. Like I wasn't getting paid to do this. So I had to come up with, you know, one of the variables was keep this cheap. And filing a verification pleading costs, you know, I had to log on to Pacer and it was very reasonable to get involved. And I also think if this case goes through and the Supreme Court upholds it, I've created a way for other activists and individuals to get involved in these mass tort cases or these big mass chapter 11 cases. Like another lawyer could go in with uh, a group of parents or whatever it is, a group of victims and gum up the case. I guess to that point of people, you know, you said gumming it up, you know, there's definitely been arguments that there are a lot of people similarly situated to your clients who do want the settlement. They need the money, they want the money. And they're kind of like, you know, no one's going to be happy with everything. But like, what does accountability even look like with our justice system? And so what have you kind of said in response to that argument? Yeah, I mean, first, I think the individual parents and victims of Purdue Pharma deserve much more money. The settlement for individuals came out before the Department of Justice even announced a criminal plea deal with Purdue. So it's very suspicious to me that if you're talking about how much money should somebody get from bad behavior, that liability should have been calculated after we knew there was criminal activity, not before there was criminal activity. Also, this whole process of non-debtor releases It's something we've been arguing about since the beginning of the bankruptcy, saying that this is going to slow up the case. You need to work around this. You can't use these things because in the end, if you use them, the case is going to get overturned. And so we were arguing early on, like, this is going to delay. Just don't use them. And then third, like Purdue itself and those supporting the plan appealed the case. So it went from the bankruptcy court to the district court. The district court said, no, you can't use these releases. And then Purdue and plan proponents were the ones that appealed. So they're appealing too. They wasted a whole year trying to cram through these non-debtor releases instead of coming up with some kind of alternative. And the reason I think they did that is because this is what the Sacklers wanted. The Sacklers sort of, their interest guided the entire case. This entire case was predicated on the Sacklers getting universal releases. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, what they could have said is, okay, a bunch of people want to settle let them settle. And if you have a few people out there, especially they're not even states, all the states settle. You're just talking about some individuals like my client, Ellen Isaacs, who want to bring lawsuits against the Sacklers. Well, the Sacklers still have plenty of money to fight those lawsuits. You know, they could have those lawsuits. They could, maybe they wouldn't pass a motion to dismiss. Maybe they would, you know, lose on liability. Let's give the Sacklers just what everybody else has, which is a little bit of uncertainty. I guess that really reinforces something you said earlier is that the Sacklers have been able to kind of like run the show. They've been able to say, what court do I want to be in? Practically, what judge do I want to be in front of? There's a lot of kind of picking and choosing. And that's like a constant refrain about the American justice system is that if you're wealthy enough, you can like DIY your own legal system. As someone navigating this as, you know, 
an advocate, as an activist lawyer, what has been kind of the shocking aspects of this? Because I think a lot of people are kind of like almost resigned to that truth of like wealth gets to construct the legal system. And so what have been for you the infuriating points and for law students listening, what are the things that they should be like, no, like don't resign yourself to this. These are the things we can really push on. Yeah, I think as far as infuriating, the first thing was there was a criminal settlement for a medical records company called Practice Fusion in which the Department of Justice settled with them and said there's a co-conspirator that paid you a bunch of money to mess with people's diagnostic software so that when the doctor came into the patient's room, the software would keep doing these drop-down menus saying, how much pain are you in? You should take OxyCop. You should take these accelerators. And so they were messing around with the doctor-patient relationship. When the DOJ came out with that settlement, they failed to say who was paying the bribes, which pharmaceutical company was paying the bribe. And it really infuriated me because it was so clear that it was Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma was a criminal company that was engaged in a civil bankruptcy without being called criminals. And so that was like the first really infuriating point, and it's really what motivated me to, to represent these individuals in the bankruptcy. The second thing that came out that was really infuriating was before the bankruptcy was filed, just over six months before it was filed, they changed their service address to White Plains, New York. And that's really creepy because clearly they were picking the judge that they wanted to file in front of. Purdue didn't exist in White Plains. They existed in Stanford, Connecticut, which is just as close to Bridgeport, Connecticut, where there's a bankruptcy court. But they knew there was a judge that would protect the Sacklers during the case so that there could be a settlement. And that also believed in these non-debtor releases, which, you know, were very controversial. There were plenty of federal bankruptcy judges that didn't believe in these releases then. You know, the third thing that was really infuriating to me is that Purdue and the Sacklers signed a contract called a joint defense agreement before they went into bankruptcy. So a common interest agreement and joint defense agreement is that the Sacklers lawyers represent the Sacklers, Purdue's lawyers represent Purdue, but they have a contract that they can share defense strategies, they can share information, and they'll keep it all confidential. So Purdue's lawyers don't represent the Sacklers and the Sacklers lawyers don't represent Purdue, but they're contractually obligated to share the same interests through this contract. And to me, that's really perverse when you look at the bankruptcy scheme where the debtors, Purdue, are going after the non-debtors, the Sacklers, but they have this sort of secret agreement in their back pocket. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that disrupted the whole system in my mind. You have these co-conspirators or co-defendants who are pretending in the public to be acting as adversaries. And that to me was just didn't smell right. And it was something that my clients, you know, when I brought it to them, they were just furious. Again, looking at my limitations, I didn't file a motion to say, okay, they have a joint defense agreement, debtors should drop out and this should go back to Article 3. What I did was just write a strongly worded letter to the court saying, hey, there's this joint defense agreement. This seems wrong in the bankruptcy structure. And I didn't hear much about it, like the Wall Street Journal talked about it. And then six months later, there was a settlement with the Department of Justice with those law firms saying that they failed to disclose that secret agreement. And so it didn't stop the case, but it certainly put everybody on notice, like this is a really bad thing. I know for me, when I was reading Empire of Pain and all these things, like it's, you get incredibly like aggravated that this was allowed to happen and that there's still been like very little besides like 
I guess their reputations have been soiled. But other than that, it feels very frustrating that not much has happened. And so I guess to a frustrated listener who maybe is learning a lot about it right now or kind of came in already knowing a lot about what's been going on with this, what are the things that make you feel optimistic enough to continue doing this work? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think our system still allows people to do this kind of work, you know, to go into open court and object. And I don't think that's happening everywhere else in the world. So for one, we still are able to participate in the legal process and the government process. Two, like if you look at where the money goes in law, it goes to people like Purdue. The Sacklers and Purdue have minted many millionaire lawyers protecting them in their interests, right? Like many, many, many. You know, many of the big law firms represent their interests and have continued to represent their interests for 20 years. You know, so it's no surprise that they have really good legal defenses and legal tactics. But like a guy like me who practices art law can still walk into court and say, this is wrong. This is unconstitutional. The constitution doesn't allow this, or this isn't the way the court system should work. And I was able to voice those arguments and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The other thing that gave me hope is, you know, on our side that we're against the plan, the Department of Justice joined us. So it's like we had the best law firm in the world on our side suddenly, you know. And while we filed separate briefs and argued separately, it was nice to know that the United States government had kind of come around and started fighting these things. I give the U.S. Trustee's Office a ton of credit for sticking their neck out and, and fighting against this. I was really grateful that they stepped up. I think the way the needle has moved from, I'm sure, when you got involved in this case to where we're at now is tremendous. For me, what has resonated the most during our conversation has been like you kind of have kept saying, like you are this arts lawyer who is able to have your voice heard and make sure your clients who, you know, were not necessarily like the name Sackler that was getting all the attention were able to have their piece heard through your objections, through your working with media and educating the media on these issues. And again, all of this happened without you, you know, I'm sure there was never a moment in law school when you're like, I'm going to be a bankruptcy guy specifically around the opioid crisis. And so to kind of close out our interview, what would you say to a law student who has like a lot of different interests and they wanted to listen to this episode because they're like, oh, maybe this will make me feel like I can do it all or whatever. How do you make sure that you get these kind of opportunities to diversify and not be kind of caged in by one specialty? What would you say to them? It's so hard when you're a lawyer because you're like, you want certainty in what your future is. I think if you can dispel some of that and just be excited about the uncertainty of what the future holds, it'll open up so many opportunities that you didn't know were there. So I guess my advice would be live a little recklessly. We'll be back after the break. Leah, honestly, I'm blown away by so many different pieces of this interview. What really got me was that the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma each had their own legal team that was then contractually obligated to share strategies with each other. And because I have not followed the case so closely, I didn't realize that that was happening. And it really just put imagery in my mind of Mike... <laughs> all on his lonesome by himself. And then like this team of like 30 attorneys huddling in a corner, like plotting against him. 
Was that something that you already knew prior to this interview or like what was your initial reaction to hearing that and finding that out when Mike kind of explained that? I knew a little bit about it just from like reading all the content on it. And I think it's this like wild thing that like in so many ways we are treating the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma as one, right? Their legal team is almost being treated as one. Their resources were like one. I mean, there was members of the Sackler family in charge of the boards. Like it was so intertwined. And then all of a sudden we're like, JK, they're different enough that when one goes bankrupt, it's not really the other one. And I think it just really reinforced that you can write the rules the way you want to when you have enough wealth. And the fact that our rules are already written this way reinforces that the wealthy of past generations also set it up this way. Like everything's intentional. It's all part of the plot. You know, something I asked Mike was like, how do you stay kind of like motivated when you almost kind of know how the story ends, right? Like not every story is David and Goliath, right? Sometimes it's Goliath wins because of course he does, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like shocking, but then I'm like never shocked. So I'm like so cynical about the system. And then it's almost like I have to remind myself that like the trope is David and Goliath for a reason because David has to win sometimes, right? Right, right. And I, I just thinking of like strategy in general, even when he said that Purdue changed their service address to White Plains, New York, mm -hmm. I, if I had a table that I could flip as I was listening, I would have flipped it. And I genuinely started to write my civil procedure professor and be like, I feel like we didn't cover this and you need to run back how this is possible when there's no headquarters there. They're not incorporated there. They're close to Connecticut. Make this make sense. And I think that highlights and underscores what you just said, right? If you have the money, if you have the funds, there are some things that you can do to work the system in your favor in a way that we might not think is so fair. And I mean, in general, look how this has all played out with the opioid crisis and the people who are addicted to opioids being framed as victims, vice another war on drugs that this country has mm -hmm. dealt with and those people not being labeled the same. So I think in totality, it just keeps in every instance you turn, you keep kind of getting that same reminder over and over again. And I, I hope you're right. I hope that David does win sometimes. In this case, I hope I hope that David does win. And I think, you know, to not be like a only eat the rich perspective, I think that when you talk about these resources and how they're instrumental to the law, you know, Mike Quinn was doing this pro bono. He had his own private firm he works in normally. He's a partner there. And I see this like every day. My fiance works at a law firm in New York and she does amazing pro bono work. She's been able to work on immigration and veterans work. And for folks listening who are like, yeah, it's really inspiring to see these kind of once in a lifetime cases, but like due to debt, due to whatever other reasons, I'm going to corporate law. I'm going to, you know, wherever their path takes them. How can I be as reckless as Mike Quinn wants me to be? And I think there's just like, a huge thing to be said for the variety and the ability to dive into pro bono work to, you know, if you're going to be within the Goliath framework, you can give a little bit of the Goliath to David every once in a while. Right. And I, when Mike said be reckless towards the end, while I, Leah, you're about to be done. 
I have a year left. I think it's different when you're on the other side and you've passed the bar and you can literally walk through those little lines and literally pass through the bar um, for you to say that. But I know a lot of us as students are type A. So he says, be a little reckless and we roll our eyes. So I just wanted to let the audience know that I, I rolled my eyes too. <laughs> but he he might be right in some former facet of let go of the plan a little bit. Don't hold on to it so tightly that you would miss an opportunity like this. And I think, you know, there's like earlier when we talked about like, how are we going to define success? Then that can be different. I'm like, I think, you know, some versions of reckless and my version of reckless is a very different, like, you know, he's saying like, Ooh, be reckless and take on a pro bono case. Like that's a little different than I think a lot of people's definition of like going wild and going reckless. And I think it's, you know, within our world of rules, you still have to follow the rules, right? Like he was filing objections. He wasn't like jumping on the table going like, you know, bananas. I'm taking it away as like a synonym for like, be creative of like, don't let the like formality of how it's always done be what you continue to do. Because if it's always been done that way and you always lose, then you're just going to keep losing. So let me put this question to you guys, because this was something I was thinking about after I listened to your interview, Leah. So we talk about creative lawyering and choosing your own path. You know, it makes sense to say to people, well, if you're going to go to big law, think about doing something out of your comfort zone to help other people and things like that. But obviously there are people who chose to be a part of, I think, what Mike references is like the billions of dollars of money that have been spent on lawyers for the Sacklers. You know? And they've been engaged in creative lawyering too, much to Shea's chagrin, right? They managed to switch the address to White Plains so they could choose the one judge, which was probably a version of really strategic lawyering. When I heard that, oh, they have this, this joint defense agreement and then they go ahead in bankruptcy court and they're adversarial to each other, I thought, okay, these are people who are kind of working the system. And there was a part of me, I will be honest, there's a part of me, because I think it's very easy to just like kind of, you know, obviously we know who the bad guys in the story are, but there was a part of me, and maybe I say this as a former criminal defense attorney, who saw really creative lawyering on behalf of the people who were getting paid the money to, to do that by the Sacklers. And I kind of thought, those people are good lawyers too, really good lawyers. And I thought to myself, was there something about maybe going into that area of law that people would find challenging? And so does it make it wrong if you're out there and you're listening to this and you think to yourself, well, I'm going to go represent people like the Sacklers because I can really engage in interesting lawyering on their behalf and I find that really interesting? Is it wrong to, to do it? Did the Sacklers wrong to pay billions of dollars and get the best representation possible? Is everybody entitled to a defense? Because obviously some of our listeners are going to have to make a choice about who they're going to represent. And so is there anything wrong with what their lawyers did? Should we even admire them to a little bit? Because they learned this stuff somewhere and they ended up using it pretty well. I mean, I think it, it's it's like, I, I just don't feel for like, for me, it's a place to judge other people's motives and like the path they've had to take in their career. I think that's like, something I learned in law school. Cause I think people go to law school with a completely different backgrounds and the jobs afterwards necessitate very different things based on their obligations, their circumstances. You know, I think like if you're super passionate about defending corporations from paying their dues, maybe let's have coffee and chat about that. But I think I don't necessarily like, you know, I really believe in public defense. I think everyone has a right to defense. 
I admire creative Laureen when I see it. Do I want to go do that personally? It's not for me. But I also just think that like the legal profession is a toolkit. And like you started off this conversation today with of like you can use your law degree for good or evil or whatever the framing was. I don't think that's like necessarily like evil. Like we have an adversarial process. You kind of want good lawyers on both sides. I just want to make sure that there's really, really, really good empowered lawyers for the people who don't have the money. So I don't think it's bad to go for the places with the money. I just want to make sure it's not where the, only the good lawyers go. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that was a great answer to my my question. I hadn't thought about that. And I think that's terrific. I feel I feel better now, right? It's like, I don't think they did anything wrong. But at the same time, I think it makes sense to say that the profession's better off with more Mike Quinns. And maybe there's some more Mike Quinns out there listening to this podcast. Before we go, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to share our podcast with your friends and fellow students. We want to hear from you, so send us your thoughts about the show or issues you'd like to hear about in a review. We at the ABA Law Student Podcast would like to express our thanks to our production team at the Legal Talk Network and the professionals at the ABA Law Student Division. Thank you.